Well, if you have your Bibles with you, and I hope you do, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Today we'll be looking at 26 through 40, verses 26 through 40. And if you don't have a Bible, then you can grab one of the pew Bibles there and turn to page 903 in the pew Bible. 903 in the pew Bible. And if you do not have a Bible of your own, then you just take that pew Bible, and that's our gift to you today, because we want everybody to have a copy of God's Word. 1 Corinthians 14, 23, uh, excuse me, 26 through 40. You know, worship is a major topic of discussion in the church today, and it's always been that way. Uh, worship has always been an issue in the church. There's always been uh, discussions, if you will, about church. Uh, we've even come to know this term, worship wars. If there can be such a thing as worship wars, can you worship and have war at the same time? I think not, uh, not in the church. But uh, there's all of this talk about, you know, what should worship look like? Uh, should it be traditional? Should it be contemporary? Should it be blended? And so there's all kinds of, of discussion, sometimes heated discussion, over Worship, which has led to that kind of terminology, worship wars. You know, this idea of worship wars was birthed out of the concept that worship is what we make it, right? Worship is what we make it. It all depends on personal taste, so uh, it, it's about what I, I want, my desires when I come to church. Uh, that's how we should build our worship. Now, certainly, there are cultural factors that are always considered when it comes to worship. You know, worship here in America is not going to look the same as worship over in, say, uh, South Korea or Africa or somewhere else on the globe. And worship will look different here in the 21st century than it did in the 1st century and 10th century and even the 20th century. As our culture changes, worship, in some sense, the, the overall uh, view of it or the overall outlook of worship will will somewhat change but you know Christians we, we think sometimes that God has nothing to say about worship right often we, we think that well worship is our domain right we, we build the service like we want it and what suits our taste but the fact of the matter is God has a lot to say about worship God tells us how our worship ought to be ordered how it ought to flow, what it should look like. Now, there's not specific, so there is that, that cultural element that can then feed into worship. We, can, we build worship from our own cultural experiences to some degree, but God gives us direction even in that, how worship should look. There are many texts in Scripture that deal with worship, and one important text is the text that we are looking at today here in 1 Corinthians 14, 26 through 40. In this text, we learn an important lesson about worship. Here we learn that godly worship is ordered for the church's edification. Godly worship, that is God-ordained worship, is ordered, that's an important word, ordered for the church's edification. Now notice, it's the church's edification not the church's entertainment we have to stress that because many people lose that that vision right they, they lose sight of that a lot of people come to church expecting to be entertained I, i'm not here to entertain you brother larry is not here to entertain you the purpose of, of this church uh, of this service is not to entertain you the purpose of this service is to edify you that is to help you to grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ, to help you become more like Jesus. And that's what godly worship looks like. Godly worship is ordered for the church's edification. This text reveals for us four requisites, then, of godly worship. Four requisites of godly worship. So we're going to see these four requisites of godly worship today. So if we are going to worship according to God's will, we need to pay close attention to, to this text and the requisites it sets forth for us. 
So if you found your place there in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26, please stand with me in reverence to the reading of God's holy word. Hear the word of the Lord. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn. And let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets for God is not a God of confusion but of peace as in all the churches of the saints the women should keep silent in the churches in the churches for they are not permitted to speak but should be in submission as the law also says if there is anything they desire to learn let them ask their husbands at home for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or, spirit, or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Amen. May the Lord add blessings to the reading of his holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And may he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. And you may be seated. Now, as we consider our text here this morning, we need to understand what's taking place here in Corinth. There is a problem here in Corinth and in the worship there. We've already talked about many problems in Corinth, right? This was a, a, a troubled church if there ever were one. But uh, there, Paul here is bringing out a, another problem within the church. Now, now this is coming out of the context of spiritual gifts. So he's already addressed how spiritual gifts are to be used in church and, and how they are to edify the church. He has addressed some of the problems with spiritual gifts in the church. And now he sees another problem with spiritual gifts being used within the, the corporate worship, that time of corporate worship when the church comes together week by week to worship. Uh, there is confusion in worship, right? The people are using their gifts in a way that is causing chaos instead of order. Look at that first verse there. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn or a psalm, according to your translation, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. He's pointing out here in this first sentence the problem. The Corinthians know this problem, they see this problem, they understand this problem, and so Paul just gives us a little sentence here to, to bring up the problem. So people are coming to church, and these are little house churches, uh, most about 50 people, 30 to 50 people in these little house churches. And so someone brings a hymn or a song that they had, had written, right? And, and, and by the way, here, here we see an indication that uh, singing, Music is a spiritual gift. There's an indicator here. Uh, so there's someone who has the gift of music and, and they have a new song to sing and, and they bring it to, to worship service. And someone else has a, a revelation, a sermon to be preached. And others have a, a lesson to teach and, and so on and so forth. And, and all of these people are, are bringing their, their little contribution, right? And they're, they're fighting for their place in the order of service, right? Like, there is no order. There's just chaos. 
Someone says, I got this new hymn that, that I, I wrote this week, and they're starting to sing, and, and right in the middle of that song, someone else says, I got a word from the Lord, and then someone else starts blurting out in a tongue, and, and there's just chaos in the church. There's no order. And Paul says, no, 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 no. That's, that's not godly worship. That's not worship ordained by God. That is sinful kind of worship. You don't need this chaos you need order and so he goes on in the rest of this this text to point out the requisites of godly worship to address this issue to overcome this issue by showing them the requisites the requirements for godly worship and the first requisite of godly worship that we see in our text today is this godly worship is organized for edification Godly worship is organized for edification. That is, godly worship has a common purpose. Godly worship has a common purpose. Notice what he says there in the rest of, of verse 26. Let all things be done for building up. Let all things, everything that takes place in the worship service should have a common purpose. And that common purpose is the building up of the saints, the edification of the saints, so that the people of God are growing in their knowledge of God, in their relationship to Jesus Christ, and in their obedience to the Lord. All of that is everything that we do here in our worship service should be ordered for your edification. Again, not your entertainment. There's a lot of things that we could do to entertain you, right? We could have a big concert, and we could cause all kind of chaos, like at a rock concert, right? There's all this noise and the pyrotechnics going off, and all that is to get you excited and going and entertain you. But that's not the purpose here. The purpose here is your edification, that you grow in your knowledge of God. And that's what true worship looks like. True worship grows you in your, your relationship to Jesus Christ. Now, there's a lot of things that are involved in true worship. Of course, yes, we, we sing songs because that Scripture teaches us that, right? The, the whole Psalms, the whole book of Psalms, that's songs sung, sung in worship to the Lord. That's a part of, of worship. But even that is for your edification, to teach you about Jesus so that you grow to be more like Jesus, so that you learn to live in obedience to the Word of God. That's what true worship is. True worship is growing in our knowledge and our obedience to God. 1 Samuel, chapter 15, verse 22. Samuel said to the people, has, uh, says to Samuel, or, or excuse me, says to Saul here, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to listen than the fat of ram. See, Saul got it all mixed up. Saul disobeyed God. He didn't go out and destroy uh, the people that God told him to go destroy. Instead, he brought back all of the, the cattle and everything, and, and he told Samuel, well, here's my excuse. We brought these back to, to sacrifice unto the Lord, to worship, right? To bring into the worship service, to, to worship God. And Samuel says, does God, does he desire sacrifice or obedience? You see, true worship it's not all this extra stuff. True worship is obedience. Obedience to God. Conforming to God's word. Conforming to his character. And so all of our worship, from the very first scripture reading to the invitation, through the songs that we sing and the message that is preached, all of it must have one common purpose to edify the saints to build up the saints and the lord so there's a common purpose and then everything is ordered for that purpose now he makes this clear throughout the rest of the text but but we see it he, here even in the next few little verses here 
Look at verse 27. <clears throat> if any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and, and let the others weigh what is said and on and on and on. There's this order. See, they're, they're, they're chaotic. There's no order. Somebody's just jumping up. I got this. Somebody else jumping. I got this. They're overrunning one another. They're interrupting one another and there's this chaos. And Paul says, no, no, order. Order. Everything is ordered for the building up, the edifying of the church. Even here with that, that gift of tongues. Now, we've already covered this, and so I'm not going to harp on that. Uh, you know that I'm a cessationist. I believe that this, the gift of tongues ended in the apostolic age, right? And, and so after Paul, that, that gift, uh, after Paul and the other apostles, that gift se seems to have ceased. It, it went away. Now, for those charismatic brothers and sisters out there and those who are continuationists and believe the gift of tongues continues we can still have fellowship with one another i disagree with you but that's okay we can have fellowship with one another but we have to agree on this one because what does paul say here he says that if any speak in a tongue let there be only two or or at most three and each in turn and let someone interpret but if there is no one to interpret let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Now, this is where I have a problem with so many of the, the charismatic uh, you know, services that I've ever been to. I'm not saying all of them because I haven't been to all of them, but the ones I have been to, there's always someone speaking in tongues, but no one has ever interpreted. And that's unbiblical because that doesn't build anybody up. That's not to the church's edification. If the church doesn't know, learn more about Jesus, doesn't know, learn more about God's word through that gift, then that gift is useless in the church. And so even Paul says, hey, if, that, if you want to speak in tongues, fine. Stay at home, go to your prayer closet, speak in your tongue, and, and fine. But don't bring it to the church unless there's someone to interpret. If someone's there to interpret, then that's okay. But if there's no interpretation, then that's not going to edify anybody else in the church. Stay silent. You see, it's all, all of it, from, from speaking in tongues to prophesying to the hymns, everything is for one purpose, that the church may be built up in Christ. And if the church ain't being built up, then leave it at home, whatever it is. Everything must be ordered for the building up of the church. If our worship is to be godly worship, reflecting the nature of God, then our worship must be organized for the edification of the church. And Paul points this out. Like, this, this reflects the very nature of God, doesn't it? Orderly worship reflects the very nature of God. Look at verse 33 there. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. God is a God of peace, not confusion. He's not a God of chaos, right? God is not a God of chaos. God is a, a God of peace. He's a God of order. When God created the heavens and the earth, he brought it into order. He brought order. It was sin that brought in the chaos. It was sin that messed everything up. And so if our church is to reflect the very nature of God, then our church service, our worship service, must be ordered for the edification of the church. It must be ordered for the edification of the church. So godly worship is organized for edification. Second, godly worship is, prioritizes preaching. Godly worship prioritizes preaching. Now we've already talked about this some, but Paul brings it up again, so we need to bring it up again. Godly worship prioritizes preaching. First, we see here that, that preaching is essential. Preaching is absolutely essential to worship. Notice what he says there in, in verse uh, 29. Let two or three prophets speak. Now, now, look what he's saying here. 
And, and notice the difference between what he says in 29 and what he says up in, in uh, 27. Up in 27, when he's dealing with tongues, he says, if, right? There's a condition there. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at the most three, and each in turn. But if no one is to interpret, let them, you know, pray to themselves, right? There's this if, if. But if there's no interpreter, then don't let that happen, right? Don't, don't let them speak in tongues. So, so it's only a condition there, you know, if there is, but it's no big deal if it's not. But that's not what he says in verse 29 when it comes to, to preaching. Now, we've talked about prophets in our context would be preaching or the preacher. Let two or three preachers speak. This is an imperative. It's not a conditional sentence. It's an imperative. It is a command. It's an absolute requirement for worship. Let two or three prophets, preachers, preach. That's what he's saying. Let two or three. Now, we have one, and I know you are glad of that, aren't you? I mean, can you imagine if we had three of me, three preachers up here, and, and three preachers preaching three different sermons? Uh, back in that day, man, they were there for the night, and, and so they, they did that. We don't quite do that. And so I'm the designated preacher most Sundays, and, and so I preach. But, but it's a requirement. It's an absolute must that the Word of God be preached. It must be preached. It's essential. Preaching is essential to worship. We can do a lot of things in worship, but if the Word of God is not preached, if there's no sense of thus saith the Lord to you, then real worship really hasn't happened. Preaching is essential to worship. We have to hear from God. We have to hear from God. He has to speak to us. Or else we, we have not had, had worship. So preaching is essential. Furthermore, preaching is to be assessed. It is to be assessed. It is to be examined. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. Let them weigh, right? Let, let what the pre preacher preaches be weighed. Let it be measured. He, he goes on there in the, verse 32, and the spirit of prophets are subject to prophets. So in, in the New Testament church, that first century church, there were a number of prophets, number of preachers there in the church, and they all preached their, their message. If they had a message, they preached it but they were all subject to the other prophets, the other elders in the church. Uh, they were there to examine what was preached. And so you couldn't just get up and preach anything and, and the whole church buy into it. But, but what Paul says here is what is preached should be weighed. It should be examined. How should it be examined? Just because the preacher made you feel good? Just because you like the way he does it, like the way he speaks? No, it's to be examined by the Word of God. It's to be examined by the Word of God. That's why he says that, that the, the spirit of prophets is, is uh, well, let me just read it. The spirit of prophets are subject to the prophets. Those who were in the church who, who knew the Word of God, they would examine what was being said and, and make sure it was according to God's Word. Someone wasn't just kind of, given their own opinion there but it was the word of god now for us every one of us have a have the word of god you have it in your hand right you have it in your hand and, and so when you come you don't just take what i say at face value don't do that i'm your preacher but don't take what i say at face value examine what i said i challenge you examine what i say and if what I say is according to God's word, if it, if it jives with God's word, then you're responsible. That's the word of God. You, you're responsible to receive it and, and apply it to your life. But now, if you say, wait a minute, that's not what that says. Brother Richard, you're wrong there. I don't agree with that. That's not what that text says. Then, hey, if it's not what the text says, you don't have no obligation to, to receive that. I'm wrong, right? 
The best of men are men at best, and I make mistakes, so don't just take everything I say at face value. Now, I study hard, and I prepare to my messages, and I, try, I work really hard to try to make sure everything that I say is according to God's Word. But I'm a man, and I make mistakes. God's Word is infallible. I am fallible. So you weigh everything that I say, and any other preacher stands up here and says, according to the Word of God. Because God's word is the standard, not the man, God's word. So preaching should be weighed, it should be measured, it should be assessed according to God's word. Luke, in the, the book of Acts, he praises the Bereans for them examining God's word. He says the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night, that's from Thessalonica, he sent, they sent them away to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble. Notice that. They were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, and look at this, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So Paul and Silas go into the synagogue. They begin to preach the gospel and Luke doesn't just say, hey, they received it with gladness. He said, they examined the scriptures. They were noble. They, they had a, a positive characteristic here, a positive character trait. They were noble in that they examined what Paul and Silas preached to make sure that what they preached was according to God's word. And so you should be, right? Though you, so you should be, you should examine what is being preached by God's word. Is it what God is saying in his word? So preaching is essential. It must be assessed. And preaching also must edify. Preaching is to be edifying. It is to be edifying. Notice what he says there in verse 31. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may, notice that word there, so that, here's purpose, here's the reason behind the prophecy, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. That's the whole purpose of preaching, is that the church of God might be edified, might grow in your knowledge, might be encouraged in your walk with the Lord. Preaching is to edify you. It is for you, and for your growth in Jesus Christ. So preaching is essential. It must be assessed and it must edify the church. You know, no matter what else is going on in a particular service, the Word of God must be preached. Even when we do our, our Christmas choir special, you notice we don't get out of here unless I preach. Right? It, it may not be the, the normal length of a message because we may you know, spend a, a majority of the time with the choir special, but the Word of God will be preached. Because according to this text, if the Word of God is not preached, we haven't really worshipped. Not as a church. The Word of God must be preached. Godly worship prioritizes preaching. Godly worship prioritizes preaching. So godly worship is organized for edification. Godly worship prioritizes preaching. Third, godly worship is focused and reverent. Godly worship is focused and reverent. Now we come to this verse. <laughs> Y'all been waiting for this verse. This is one of those verses that people start scratching their heads and husbands start poking their wives and all that kind of stuff. Well, Let's see if we can shed some light on, on this verse, verses uh, 30, well, the second half of 33 through 35. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is, a sh it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. So what are we to do? Are we going to gag all the women as they come in, hand out your gag? No, that's not what uh, this verse is getting at here. We need to understand the context uh, of what's going on, right? There's a problem in the church. 
there's an issue here. That church is not ordered the way it should be ordered. There's chaos. And apparently here in Corinth, first century Corinth, there were a group of, of women who were feeding this chaos. Right? So the indication here is that there are, uh, there's this group of women in this church who are being disruptive in church. They're being disruptive in church. And quite frankly, in first century, women didn't have the right to speak up in public. But now here comes Christianity, and, and, and they are, you know, one in Christ with their husbands. And so there, there's this kind of new liberation thing going on, and, and they're being disruptive in church. They're, they're speaking out in church. And, and so there's, there's the, someone's out there preaching or, or giving a lesson, and, and all of a sudden, uh, here the, these women are who are causing disruption. They're, they're, they're not even raising their hand, right? They're just blurting out in the middle of everything. They're being disruptive, asking questions, and disrupting the order of, of service. And so Paul is addressing that issue. Paul's not saying that women should never speak in church. In fact, earlier in 1 Corinthians, he, he gives, uh, you know, ways for women to, to pray in church and that sort of thing. He, he talks about Phoebe, who was a, a great woman of God, and other women in the church who were, were vital to the, the life of, of the church. So Paul's not saying that women should never, ever speak in church, but these disruptive women, he's saying they, they've got to stop, right? There's a disruption here. And, and that's, uh, that's not according to godly worship. Godly worship is to be focused and reverent. That means that we as a church must eliminate unnecessary distractions. The church must eliminate unnecessary distractions. These women were causing this distraction, and, and that needed to cease. They needed to quit distracting from the flow of the church. Furthermore, we need to eliminate irreverent behavior. We need to eliminate irreverent behavior. Apparently, this group of women were being irreverent. They were being disrespectful. He, he points out there, the women should keep quiet in church for they are not permitted to speak but should be in submission. He's bringing out this, this point of submission as the law also says, what's he talking about? What's he, where does the law say that women should be in submission? Well, in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. God says uh, that he created man, he created Adam, and he looked at Adam and said, Adam, you're all alone, and I'm going to create a helpmate for you. So God created woman to be a helpmate for her husband. From the very beginning of creation, God created the family unit where the, the husband is to be the head of the household, the leader. He's to lead his family and, and godly living, and, and the wife is to come alongside him and support him and help him in that. And I know we live in a society where women's lib is all up there, and, and women should be just right up there with men, but God didn't create us that way. We are equal. Don't, don't get me wrong here. We are equal. Man and woman are equal in dignity. We are both valuable. Women, you are just as valuable as any man is. You are created in the image and likeness of God, just like your husband is. But God ordered the family for the, the husband to be the head of the household, the leader, to guide his family in godliness. And he created women to be a helpmate. He, he created us different, didn't he? He created us different. Biologically, we're different. Emotionally, we're different. Not that, that one is better than the other, but he created us to complement one another. Mary Beth is a woman, right? And, and her womanly attributes her feminine attributes complement my masculine attributes we complement one another and that's the way it should be paul makes this further clear in ephesians ephesians chapter 5 let me just flip over there real quick he, he lays this out for us 
Ephesians chapter 5. He talks about this even more, referring back to the creation ordinance there where God created a woman to be a helpmate. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and, his, and his, is his, himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. They should submit to, his, to their husband's leadership as they lead them in a godly manner. But look, husbands, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her for, uh, by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, husbands, that you're to, to invest in your wives, you're to sacrifice of yourself for your wives to grow them in the Lord. That's your responsibility. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own body, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I say it, uh, and, I, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So men are called to lovingly lead their wives. Wives are called to respect their husbands and respect their leadership as head of the household. And in Corinth, that's not happening. There is disrespect. Likely what's taking place, we don't know this for sure, but likely what's taking place is there are, are some preachers who are standing up there, they're preaching, and even some of their wives are kind of haggling them. Oh, wait a minute, I don't agree with that. Stop. What did you say? Even while their husbands are, are preaching or teaching in the church, there's this disrespect taking place. Paul said, that's, that's not the characteristic of godly worship. Godly worship is not to be that way. Godly worship should be focused and, and reverent. There should be a sense of respect in the house of God. And in worship. So we need to eliminate unnecessary distractions and we need to eliminate irreverent behavior because that just disrupts the, the flow of church. It disrupts the worship. I can remember one time not too long ago, a few years back, I was doing a, a jail revival. Now this was a jail revival and not, not church and so you expect something like this but it serves as a good illustration of, of what I mean here. I was doing this jail revival and I was preaching along, and, 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 you know, I was focused, and I was hammering down on a point, right? I was making a point. People who were there listening, they were, they were on the edge of the seats, right? They were paying attention. They were focused on me. They were hearing what I was saying. And then as I'm in the midst of, of making a point, someone shouts out a question. That's out of nowhere. Oh, no, 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 right? And it really didn't even have to do anything to do with what I was saying at the time. Well, that outburst, that irreverent, right? She disrespected me because mid-sentence, right? It was a disrespect towards me, but it was also disruptive towards the service. And I got off track, right? What? What just happened? I got off track. The people there who were listening, who were taking in what was being said, they, right, it, it knocked them off track. It disrupted the service. The Holy Spirit, the, the, the spirit that was in the room at the moment was quenched because one person was disrespectful and disruptive in, in church. Again, 
that was jail, that wasn't church. You expect those kinds of things uh, in such a, of an, an environment as that, but, but it quenched the spirit in that moment. Well, think about if we had such a, a thing here in church, like right in the middle of my sermon right now, what if somebody just hollered out a question, right, that was just had nothing to do with anything? It would get everybody off track, right? We, we, it would cause the, the flow of the service to, to be shuffled off. And so worship is to be focused and reverent. And so when we come to worship, we should be focused and reverent. We should eliminate those unnecessary distractions and definitely eliminate any kind of irreverent behavior. Now, some of those things we can't help. And let that, that me make clear now, uh, an a, uh, unnecessary distraction is not a baby crying out. That's a good distraction. We need that. that. That indicates some kind of growth in the church, doesn't it? We want that kind of distraction. That's all right. I don't even pay attention to those kinds of things. Just keep marching on through. But, you know, we need to, to watch what we do. We need to prepare ahead of time to make sure that we don't cause unnecessary distraction. If our worship is to be godly worship, then our worship must be focused and reverent. Be considerate of others as you come into the worship center here, as you come into the sanctuary. You know, be considerate of other people, those who are around you. Be reverent of the holy. It doesn't mean we have to sit here with our hands crossed and sit down. And, uh, you know, we can raise our hands and, and we can praise God when we're singing. And, and you can say amen, right, at, a, at the right point. If you say amen, I'll, I'm going to preach even harder. That's all right. That, those are kind of, those, those flow in, into the service. But, you know, be reverent of the holy. These are holy, sacred matters that we're dealing with in here. Be reverent of the holy. Be proactive. Be proactive. It's just like, if you drink a lot of coffee up in life group, uh, run by the restroom before you come into the sanctuary, right? Or if you know that, hey, I'm going to have to get up before the service is over, uh, got a bladder the size of a thimble and I'm going to have to get up and go then, then just make a, a, an effort to sit on the edges there so that you distract fewer people I mean things like that happen right that it just happens but just try to be proactive think about what you're doing and, and cause the least amount of distraction that you can don't sit in the middle of the pew and have to cross 10 people uh, if you have to get up so be proactive in what you do godly worship is focused and reverent, it's focused and reverent. Godly worship is organized for edification. Godly worship prioritizes preaching. It is focused and reverent. And fourth, godly worship is bibliocentric. Godly worship is bibliocentric. It's centered around the Word of God. We see this in this last little, little uh, text here, last little paragraph. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Paul is being rhetorical here, asking these rhetorical questions. Of course, it wasn't just from the Corinthians that the word of God came. Or, or are you the one, only ones it has reached? Right? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet, a preacher, or, or spiritual even, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are the command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Now, notice here that Paul is speaking as an inspired apostle of God. He is writing this letter to the Corinthians knowing that this is the very word of God. He is not writing under his own authority he is writing under the authority of God. He knows that what he is saying in this letter will be uh, written down, it will be uh, guarded for ages to come, and that we, 2,000 years later, would be opening up this and saying, thus saith the Lord, right? He knows what he is speaking is the holy, inspired, and inerrant word of God. I can't say that. Paul could. So Paul is writing Scripture as he is writing this letter to the Corinthians. And so what he is saying here is that this is God's Word. This is God's Word, and God's Word is authoritative. God's Word is authoritative. 
So it doesn't matter what old Bob over there thinks. It doesn't matter if, if Bob disagrees what Paul is saying because Bob has no authority over God's Word. This is God's Word. God's Word is authoritative. It holds authority over each and every one of us. It holds authority over all of creation. And so whatever God's Word says, it goes. Period. No question marks. Period. Even an exclamation mark. God's Word is authoritative. It carries the full weight of God. And God's Word is central. God's Word is central to worship. If anyone does not recognize this, that what I'm writing is the, the command of, of God, then he is not recognized. You don't listen to him. You don't pay any attention to what they say. If anyone denies what God's Word says, don't, don't listen to them. God's Word is central. It's the center of our worship. As Paul is talking about this, as he's giving them direction and godly worship, he says, you worship according to God's Word. What I'm saying to you is God's Word. It holds authority over your worship. It is central to your worship. God's Word defines worship. God's Word defines worship. We come in here and as we gather together as God's church, we have to go to God's Word to see how we organize things, how we do things. We, get, we have some, uh, you know, some wiggle room there to kind of do things our way, but, but everything is according to God's Word. If God's Word says don't do that, we don't do that. If God's Word says do this, then we do that. So God's Word defines worship. God's Word is central to worship. And, and the, the preaching of the Word is central. The preaching of God's Word is it's central, right? I, I come, thus saith the Lord. Here's what God's Word says. Look at this line. Look at this verse. Here's what it says. If anyone ever stands up before you, in this pulpit or any other pulpit and doesn't open up God's word and say, all right, look at verse one, look at verse two, look at verse, if they don't do that, if they're just giving their opinion, then hey, just shut them out because they're not preaching. Their word, is not, their word is not authoritative, only God's word is authoritative. So God's word must be central in preaching. Uh, God's word must be even central in the lyrics to the songs that we sing. Even the message of the songs that we sing, and Larry does a great job of, of looking at the songs that we sing and making sure they align with Scripture. But as you hear the, the word sung, man, it should direct you in the, to the Word of God. It should instruct you in the Word of God. Man, it's a good thing when I leave here and I'm singing, right, helming that hymn that we, we sung or, or singing that song. And, and, you know, Monday, Tuesday, I'm still singing that song. I love that because that's the Word of God, right? The message of God's Word permeating in my soul. And so God's Word is central from the message that we preach to the songs that we sing. Everything should be bibliocentric to direct us to know God, grow in Christ, to know his word. You know, our culture has an anything goes kind of mentality. And many churches have adopted this mentality when it comes to worship. As long as their schemes are effective in, in getting people in the door, that's all that really matters to them. Preachers have brought everything from race cars to army tanks on stage as, as props for their preaching. Some have had people repelling from the church rafters to entertain their congregation. I have even heard of a church who, who had a, cir a, a, a circus, threw a circus in their auditorium and called that worship. Yet all of this is a far cry from what we see commanded in God's word. If our worship is to be godly, it must be bibliocentric. 
we must form our worship according to the demands of Scripture. The Bible must also be at the center of our worship because it is only through the Bible, only through God's Word, that we can know God and His salvation in Jesus Christ. Faith comes by hearing, hearing through the Word of Christ. As a church, let us always uphold the requisites of godly worship. Let our worship be organized for edification. Let us always prioritize preaching. Let us be focused and reverent in, in the worship service. Let us always be bibliocentric so that God may be glorified and the people may be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Church, may we always, always, Worship in a way that is godly, a way that God has ordained so that the people of God, the people of Christ, grow in their relationship with Jesus. That you grow stronger in your faith, stronger in your walk. May that always be our goal. Now for many some maybe who are here in this place, others who are watching on, on live stream or wherever. This is a message that's primarily been aimed at the church because it's about worship in the church. But I want you to know today about uh, how to be, become a part of the church, the assembly of Jesus Christ. The only way you become a, a part of the church, a part of God's family, is by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That scripture that I read at the beginning of the service Ephesians chapter 2, we are all dead in our trespasses and sins. That's our natural condition. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. We're dead to God. But God makes us alive in Christ Jesus. By grace, by His grace, through faith, by trusting in Jesus, trusting that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, that He was raised again so that you might be forgiven. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. That's God's gift to you. Because of his loving grace, he doesn't want to leave you to die in your sin. He wants to give you eternal life in Jesus if you only want to trust him. So the question is today, will you trust in Jesus? Will you surrender your life to him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this word today to your church. And Lord, you have shown us what real worship looks like, what godly worship looks like, worship that honors your, your own nature, worship that is orderly and for the edification of your people. That's what you desire for us. You want, us to, see, you want to see us grow in Christ. So, Father, every time that we come into this place, we gather together, whether it's in this building or somewhere else, wherever it may be, Lord, as we come together, let our hearts be set on knowing you, knowing Jesus, growing in our relationship with you. Oh, Father, certainly if there's any today who've never trusted in Jesus, Lord, I just pray that their hearts might be touched today and that they might turn to Christ and believe in him. These things I ask in Christ's name. Amen.